What's up, everybody? This is Judith Hill, and you're listening to The MJ Cast. The following is a presentation from The MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to The MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. I love you! <laughs> I love my fans. Just simply Michael Jackson. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm Jamin Bull, and today my guest host Charles Thompson and I are very excited to be joined by the Grammy Award-winning soul and R&B star Judith Hill. Judith came to the world's attention in 2009 when she performed at Michael Jackson's Staples Center Memorial Service, watched by an estimated global television audience of more than a billion people. Judith had been selected as the lead female soloist in Michael Jackson's band for his This Is It residency at the O2 and had been scheduled to duet with him during every show. Since then, Judith has been featured in the Oscar-winning documentary 20 Feet from Stardom, won a Grammy Award for her contributions to its soundtrack, and in 2015 released her debut solo album, Back in Time, produced by her friend and mentor, Prince. With a new album and a stage musical due out later this year, Judith is currently on tour in Europe and joins us tonight from Zurich in Switzerland. Judith, thank you very much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. I'm particularly excited to be speaking with you because I'm a big fan. Um, I'm coming to see you next week in London. Uh, and I'm oh, a huge wonderful. fan of the album. Now, the, the cover of the album, Back in Time, is a very sweet photo of you as a, a young girl sitting at a piano, which is kind of uh, leads us into the way we start all of our interviews, which is could you, um, could you tell us a little bit about your childhood and about your early musical influences? Yes, I, I started singing and writing music when I was four years old. So about the time you see that picture a little younger is when I got started. My parents were both very musical. I grew up in a very musical family and music was the house. Basically, it had been transformed into a studio. And so I got the amazing opportunity of hearing amazing singers and musicians in and out of the house, like Billy Preston and Rose Stone from Sly and the Family Stone, and just a lot of really soulful, funky people. That was my foundation as music growing up, and that's what I have grown to love and perform soul music. Whereabouts did you grow up, Judith, in, in America? What part of America? I was born in North Hollywood, and I and I grew up in the center of, of North Hollywood and, and the Valley and all of, all of L.A., cool and who were some of the artists that you would listen to who ended up shaping your musical sound as, a, as an artist yourself when i was young i listened to a lot of gospel singers like the clark sisters and vanessa bell armstrong and aretha franklin was the queen for me i always loved her and also listened to a lot of jazz singers ella fitzgerald love the music of louis armstrong but you know i've also listened to Brazilian, you know, music like Carlos Jobim and um, funk music, Brother Johnson's, um, Commodore's, Parliament. It was it's just a wide spectrum of music that I grew up listening to. I'd love it if you could tell us about what was the moment when you when you knew really that you had a shot in the industry. Did you was it did you start performing 
quite young or, or was it there a moment where you got a gig that, that you knew this was it? Yeah, it was a very subtle process of just doing it all the time. I, I, I grew up singing mainly in the church. So when I was young, that was mainly my stage and, and school as well. The school choirs, uh, uh, and then I would, you know, there were industry things that I would do here and there. Like as a kid, I'd show up in the choir on a television show and stuff like that. But it really wasn't until after college when I started doing a big gigs. So and my first big gig was um, singing behind Michel Polnareff in France for about a year. Um, and just from that, it was just a gradual process of, of doing more stuff. And so how long had you been professional before you got the This Is It gig? How old were you when you got that gig? That was like my second year out of college. Before that was Michel Polnareff. And I had gotten home from that tour and was doing ins and outs and little jobs here and there. And then I got the call from Michael's people that I, you know, for me to audition for for This Is It. So it was shortly after the Michelle Polnareff gig. And do you know how Michael's people came to hear of you? Well, I had befriended a musician that was playing a lot of open mics, and I, I did one of the open mics, and he was like, hey, you know, you're awesome, let's keep in touch. And he calls me not too long after that. He's like, yo, you know, my friend is MDing for Michael Jackson's brand new tour and I think you should go down there and audition and that's really how it started and I, I, I figured oh wow that's like crazy I, I figured it'd be like a, a really big audition like a cat call like with like a line of of girls like wrapped around a building auditioning but it was really just two of us it was two people you know auditioning for this spot I think they'd done a bigger audition earlier and then they had come across me and so that's how I got it Wow, wow. It's sort of like the opposite of what they portray in the, the film for the dancers, which is yeah, exactly. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. <laughs> hundreds, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's what I thought it would be. You know what's interesting about This Is It is a lot of the um, the people in the band were like returning alumni from other Michael Jackson tours and <laughs> yeah, um, some yeah. new people as well, like yourself. But uh, yeah, I mean, just, I suppose I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but this just popped into my head. What, did you, did you chat much with the other band and other singers about their work on previous MJ shows like dangerous and history? And Oh yeah. I mean, Dorian and Daryl had been done, his had done so many of his tours and it was really awesome and exciting to hear their experiences of like the epic tours in the past um, that they were a part of. And so it was just, it was a great time. Of course, Sugarfoot um, and, you know, it was just, it was great hearing stories from them and being a part of that. And had you been a big Michael Jackson fan growing up? Yes, I really, I really, I was, I was, Michael's music was a big part of my life as well. I think my first solo song I ever sang in school was Man in the Mirror in fourth grade. So that, that music was really close to my heart. You know, in the in the period prior to This Is It, Michael had been inactive for a while. So what were your thoughts about going into this tour? How were you feeling about, you know, the whole thing and, and how it would be received? I was really thrilled and just my mind was blown to to be a part of 
his world and a part of his tour. And, you know, it was exciting to see him come in because, you know, yeah, it had been years before and we hadn't seen him in a while. And so to see him walk in rehearsals with all of that magical energy just confirmed every idea I had of him. And he was definitely just larger than life. And it was it was thrilling to see him in action in real life. Performing with him was just like a a whirlwind of emotion and 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 and, and magic and thrill. He's just really, really incredible. Was that the first time you saw him? Was in rehearsals, or or was he there through the audition process as well? No, the first time I saw him was in rehearsal. So, the the lead female soloist role in his previous shows, like Dangerous, for example, and Bad. Um, had been filled by some pretty big names like Cheryl Crow and Saida Garrett in in previous tours. Were you aware uh, of that? And how did you feel about coming in to this tour? Were you you a little bit nervous or just full of excitement? (laughs) A little bit of both because, yes, Cheryl Crow, I mean, Saida, they're just all so incredible. And and watching footage of them, I was really studying the the part and making sure I could do a good job. and, And then I get in rehearsal and... Michael was so spontaneous that it was it was like a completely different performance than what I had studied. So I learned quickly to just go with him and 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 just really go with his energy and it was it was pretty exciting to to perform with him. But I, at, at first I had an idea and I studied every move of how he would how they performed it and and but he's just so versatile. He just kind of adapts to um every person differently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you talk about his spontaneity, and and that's so true. Like, interestingly, in the film, the actual documentary, it's quite rigid. They just show song to song. But when you watch the special features of it, there's a lot of moments where he is very spontaneous. I think there's a part where he's on stage with, um, I think it might be, I think it's Kenny and someone else, and he's just vocalizing, um, "Don't stop till you get enough." Just totally a cappella. Didn't make it in the film. Don't know if it was going to be in the show, but that was such a cool moment to hear him singing those, you know, off the wall era songs, just totally, yeah. totally live, totally a cappella, beautiful. Right. Yeah. It's awesome. Love that so song. Do you, yeah. Do you remember the first time you rehearsed with Michael? What, for instance, like what was the, the first song you sang with him in the room? I Just Can't Stop Loving You was the first song. Wow, so that's uh, a baptism heard- of fire then. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> wow. It was definitely throw into the fire um, and just go for it. Wow. And did you have an instant rapport? You know, because it, it sounds like quite a nerve-wracking thing to do, you know, to go straight into your first rehearsal with Michael and you're singing a duet with him. How did you make it through? It was kind of an out-of-body experience where your nerves are so heightened and the intensity is so heightened that you're just moving through the air and in a way where you're like, is this really real? Is it surreal? But it was also very um, powerful because the energy of an emotion of performing kind of overrides any sort of nerve. And actually they work in the nerves work in your favor because it's all energy and it's all heightened energy. And so it, it serves well when you really want to perform in a way that's so passionate and, and committed and then sometimes the nerves just fit that level of intensity that you need and so I I found it to be also very exciting in that way because he starts at level 10 so 
your your nerves kind of just take you there too, and the whole thing is very powerful. And was that the rehearsal that we see in the film, or was the one that we see in the film later on? No, that was actually yeah, that was the first one. Wow. Oh my god. Yeah, that was where I was just thrown into the fire. Wow. And so there's wow. actually other. So you're saying that d- did you perform that song again with him later on? Yes. Yeah, we would perform it few times after that in rehearsal why do you think they chose that one i don't know i think that i have no idea you know their editing process but yeah i think that that was the one where he was really singing we're both singing really loud um yeah and then he's like no i can't be doing that i gotta be preserving (laughs) you know yeah but i think that's the one where you know it was like our first introduction to each other so we all kind of just bring it further um other rehearsals were more marked, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so is that a normal thing for like a – because I, I don't know much about the world of um, touring and <laughs> preparing for big performances like that. So is it normal for an artist to um, hold their voice back to a, a large degree as they're preparing so they don't strain it for the real show? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's It's normal. It just depends also on – the pacing of all the things you got to do. And, you know, if you got a big show the next day, I don't blow my vocals like out hundred percent. You like to save yeah. it. It is that your body is your instrument. So yes. You came into this as a, as a fan. I was curious as to the, the set list for the show as a fan. Is there anything that you wish had been on there that wasn't, is there anything you wish you could have heard Michael sing in person? Oh man, he did a lot. I mean, I, I always love, it's just another part of me. I, I'm like a big Captain EO fan, so I think that, that would have been <laughs> extremely exciting for me, the inner child in me. Um, but no, he did so many songs. There were so many medleys, like where you said, for example, the Don't Stop You Till You Get Enough. That was part of like a medley of songs. He really got a lot of them. And I guess I, I would have liked him to do Remember the Time. That would have been cool. Did you ever but ask him? A lot him? of my favorite songs. No. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that, Charlie? <laughs> Michael, I think you should do this song. I don't like your set list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, well, that's, that's cool. Now, tell me about the, the set list itself. Uh, throughout, the, throughout the process, was it changing much? Was Michael coming back saying, oh, I want to remove that song, add a different song, or was it pretty much set in stone the whole way through? Uh, it didn't really change that much. There was so much production involved so yeah. it was it was pretty set set was set set list was set there were some pending songs there were a lot of pending songs like we may do this song learn it but we consistently rehearsed the main ones we we knew we were going to do yeah yeah there was i remember there was a huge survey before the tour um started where i don't know if it was sony or aeg or somebody put a big survey out online for michael fans like what songs do you want to hear and I don't know whether Michael used that as um, data for like what he what his fans wanted or whatever, but it was kind of cool being involved in that way. And then when um, when we saw the film, there was a couple of real surprises in there. Like he included a part of "Speechless," um, "Threatened," two you know kind of yeah. really unique yeah. songs from Invincible that we'd never heard him do live. It was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was that was definitely cool. Echo in here. 
I can't stop no I can't stop no baby I can't stop no I just can't stop I just can't stop loving singing out. I'm warming. I'm trying to warm up my voice for this moment. Why do you do this to me? I shouldn't be singing right now. No. No, no. You better sing. No, 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 no. I'm warming up to the moment. But you just can't help it, MJ. No, but I no, I shouldn't. Okay. I really shouldn't. Yeah, but you felt it. You No, no, but... But you can allow yourself that one time. I can't do that. But, but you're fine to do it. I gotta save my voice. Man, it's just this. This is what it is. Hi, this is Michael Prince, studio engineer and producer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Now, in terms of the rehearsals, how hands-on was Michael with you? Was he? Uh, giving you a lot of feedback on your parts, or or was that all kind of set in stone by the time he got there? No, there. Were, I mean, there wasn't much like feedback. Feedback. It was more just us performing the song, and it was always so different, though the the song performance, like the staging. It just all kind of depended on the day. Very spontaneous. There wasn't any sort of set um, staging or blocking for. For us, for I mean, Michael kind of just let that song be free. He did just say at the end, "We'll we'll stand right here," but that was about it. I mean, it was all very in real time performing the song, and it felt different each time. Yeah. So I mean, Michael Bearden, for example, the band leader. There's a moment in the film where he is giving Michael feedback in a way because Michael's singing uh, the way you make me feel. I think. Yeah. And he's um doing some unique things with it, doing going in some different directions with the song that it hadn't gone in before. And Michael Bearden was like, well, let's put that in there. Let's put that new element in there that we haven't heard before. And Michael kind of, I wouldn't say snaps back at him, but is pretty forthright and says, no, it has to be exactly what it's like on the CD. Whatever it's like on the record right. is what I want it to be like on stage. So what? that's right. an interesting dichotomy to Michael Jackson fans. And we're going to get into Prince soon, but... When you look at the two artists, Prince is an artist who's very versatile and changes things up all the time. Michael was very much like it has to be the way it is on the record. Do you wish Michael was a little bit freer on stage or do you, did you like the fact that he wanted it to be like it was on the album? Yeah, I think that's just two different, very sh- different types of shows. I think that the particular show that he was putting together was so specific and it was there were so many elements to it. There was fire, there's aerialists so much production um so i think that it was important for him to have a really set polished production that really connected in a very classic way for all the fans and so i think that i i, I like the show that i thought it was good it's it going to be an incredible show so many elements and i think it would really been exciting i think that 
And there were other places where he was very spontaneous. It was, it was just a dependent on what he wanted to be free about. Like when it came to the dance cues and like when he was going to stomp on the ground and all of that was all about watching him in his spontaneous dance moves. And he was very clear about it. He would say, Hey, you guys have to watch me, watch me. So it just really depended on what it was that he want. He wanted freedom in. So as a vocalist, um, what were the most challenging songs for you to master within that show? I think you want to be starting, starting something. A lot of the songs where it was just a lot of the rhythmic percussion type of singing, I think the most challenge is how to get a really perfect, like, tight blend between the four of us singers because Michael's music is very precise as very in the pocket and, and really rhythmic. So finding that blend and that unison and that pocket between all four singers was the challenge. And especially on, you know, mama say mama say mama cause all that stuff needed to be really tightened up. Everybody needed to be one unit, one, one force. That's a, some great insights. Thank you. And I, I really think that out of all the tours Michael did, I've got to be honest and say I really do think This Is It was the best-sounding band, the best-sounding backup singers. It was yeah. awesome. And one thing I'm so happy about, even though the tour obviously didn't get to happen, which is just just um, really sad, but we, we have that audio captured on the film. And uh, yeah. you guys just did an outstanding job. Thank you. Yeah, this was definitely fun. Prior to you getting on stage with Michael in the rehearsals, how long did you work with the other three backup singers to to get those songs perfect? We were two to three weeks in with rehearsals before we saw Michael. I think. Yeah. We had yeah we had done a lot of rehearsals before we we got with him. Yeah. Yeah. And did you have to know more songs than were on the set lists? I've heard some people yeah. say, who were, I think it was Sugarfoot or someone told us they had to know some ridiculous number of songs, like just in case Michael yeah. wanted to drop them in. Yeah, we definitely learned a lot of songs. There were a lot of just in case songs. Okay. And, and just like, just in general, talk to us a little bit about what it was like to be around Michael Jackson, just some favorite sort of memories of, of being around him. You know, he was just a sweetheart. He was really this very kind, warm-spirited person, shy, a bit shy, you know, to to us, his, his new band, and but really grateful to us, incredibly kind and, and grateful and, and just almost like a kid in a playground, really, really whimsical, really just a pleasant person to be around and very encouraging at the same time. He was always, always all about us, knowing how appreciated we were. Um, so I thought that was just really awesome of him. And in terms of the uh, kind of fan trivia that our listeners will be desperate to hear, was was there any stuff um, that you rehearsed that didn't make it into the film? Any tracks that you remember running through that, for whatever reason, didn't make it into the, uh, the final product? There was always a toss-up between Stranger in Moscow and Human Nature, and I knew oh, wow. that they were fighting for a slot. And I was devastated because I loved them both. I just remember vividly The Stranger in Moscow just being so um, incredible because his movement, he was moving like I've never seen anyone move on so beautifully. And 
uniquely on a ballad. And so, yeah, that song, that's right. It didn't make it that I was, that was always hurting my heart because we would rehearse that song and it was so good. I think they ended up going with human nature for that slot. But yeah, that's one that I really loved. Wow. Do you know with that particular song, was Michael singing out on it? Was he, was he, he was singing live and putting everything into it? Yeah. And he was dancing. He was, this is a mesmerizing dancing that he was doing us on that as well. It was really, really amazing. Crazy. So that's, he performed that in the history world tour. Um, and it was a very unique performance because it was a lot of robotic type dancing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And um, another bit of fan trivia sort of stuff we'd like to know is um, the song uh, Will You Be There? Do you know if he performed that one live? Yeah, we we, I mean, we rehearsed that one a lot. I'm trying to remember. Um, I mean, it's hard because we didn't actually do the show, so I'm not yeah. sure <laughs> if that show was actually, that song was actually going to be in the show. But we definitely learned it. We rehearsed it. But yeah, you know, I'm not sure if that song was going to make it either. Yeah. I know that it was like, because there were so many, there was like Earth Song, there would be, you know, You Are Not Alone, Heal the World, We Are the World. Those were going to make it for sure. So I'm not sure if Will You Be There was going to make it with all those other ones. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Um, and uh, the final trivia question, um, <laughs> this one comes in from um, friend of the show, Damien Shields. He'd like to know around uh, Billie Jean in particular. There's only one, a lot of the songs in the movie, they have multiple bits of, um, they have multiple nights of performance cut together to make up a song. But there's one that they don't do that with, which is Billie Jean. They only have one instance yeah. of that being performed with the, the silky sort of blue shirt. Do you um, yeah. recall Michael performing Billie Jean any other time or was it just that one time? No, he definitely performed it more than once. That was always the one we were all just, we all loved that moment because he was really, lo- he would go into that one big time. That was where he really wanted freedom with the cues at the end. But that was the first, I remember the first night where he came in and did that and everybody just went crazy. Yeah. Wow, so so I, it, so- it sounds like we got a lot of first nights in the movie then, which is interesting because you'd think that they would opt for the performances further along where perhaps he'd performed it a few more times and got back into the swing of things. But it sounds like the, for, for whatever reason, they've gone for the first time on a number of these songs. Maybe it's because of the reaction of the people in the room. Do you think? Yeah, we were all, it was so much hype because those first few days, it was like, everybody was like, they were all acting like the people that scream at the, shows with the stretchers coming we were all going crazy so i think that <laughs> i think that that's probably why they used a lot of the early like they got the shows got more technical i think at, as we went on but initial like oh my god that's michael jackson doing billy jean those the first nights were like that what was michael's reaction when people were going nuts like that how did he seem to be <laughs> just um... like bashful like kind of <laughs> just kind of you know, not just modest about it. Yeah. Michael seemed very focused on getting his message out there of love and peace and humanitarianism uh, and looking after the planet. Was this true of your interactions with him? Was there a sense of like him really wanting to communicate that message in the show? Yeah, absolutely. That was a big part of, that was his message for sure. And he, he was all about the love and, and 
Dean just wanted us to know we're a family and definitely, especially Earth Song. It was a big scene about that and the girl and the tractor and all that. Do you remember the last thing that Michael said to you before he left what would become his final rehearsal? I mean, it was, it was, it was really just, we were doing, I just can't stop loving you. And he said, this is where you take a bow right here at the end. We want them to see you. It was, it was, it was, it was basically a note like that. And that was the last thing he personally said to me. And why, what are your recollections of the next day, the day the news came in? I mean, that was just awful. I mean, it was pretty, un, un, you know, it was unfathomable. So that, that was hard. It was just difficult. Everybody was in tears and everybody was entirely shocked. What would you say, looking back at those rehearsals, was the most valuable thing that Michael taught you? I think that he was so connected to using music as a vehicle to really heal the world. And I think he really did that with his music. I think that I remember being in rehearsals and feeling stuff that I never really felt before in that capacity and realizing what a service he had given to the world, that these weren't just incredible songs and productions. This was really a, this is Michael's way of really helping people and healing people and touching people's hearts with his music and realizing just exactly what he was doing. He wasn't just the greatest pop star um, and the greatest performer, it was more than that. It was about his his desire to heal the world with love and to really write music that touches at the deepest core of, of, of the human level. And so I think walking away from those rehearsals really gave me a sense of the gravity of what he was doing. You know, before I was just a fan that I just loved music and I thought he was just so insanely incredible. But coming out of those rehearsals, you just really feel something so powerful and so important about the mission and his calling on this in this planet. And Judith Hill, I've got a question that we always ask our guests. This is our, uh, one of our last questions on Michael. Um, this is a question we ask all of our guests that knew or worked with him. How do you think Michael Jackson should be remembered? I think he should be remembered as a healer, as, as someone who healed people with his music. I think that he he brought magic um, into the world and and for all ages. I mean, kids light up when they hear his name. Everybody around the world, I think he should be remembered for for that, for his love for the world, for all people and his dedication to giving that to people. Wow. And I, we've, we can't talk about Michael without sort of mentioning your incredible tribute song to him as well that came out after his passing, I'll Always Be Missing You. That is just a, a beautiful, beautiful song. And I guess I just wanted to say as a Michael fan and a fan of yours, thank you very much for, 
for writing that song and releasing it. it is very it's a healing song in itself to hear um we mm. listen i listen to it each year you know um in june yeah it's it's very special thank you for releasing that thank you yeah have you ever performed that song live no i have not wow that's crazy i've, I've not that's just something that i felt compelled to write but it's so heavy i just I don't know. Yeah. I might have done it once years ago, but that's not a song that I really perform. Yeah. I can imagine it would be quite emotional (laughs) to perform. Yeah. It's a pretty heavy kind of emotion. Yeah. And how long after Michael passed did you write it? It was definitely that year, within that year. It was was fresh. The emotion was very fresh and... It just happened. So it was that year for sure. They took the boxes off the stage. My heart was crushed in disarray. The world was frozen and engaged. To find the king had slipped away I walked through the streets I feel so alone With questions and pain But the only thing I know I will always be missing you And your love will last forever You've inspired a dream to make the world 
This is Tommy Oregon guitarist on the Michael Jackson This Is It tour, and you're listening to the MJ cast. Now, as, uh, something we wanted to touch on is that in, in addition to working with uh, Michael, the king of pop, you also worked with Prince. And over the years, there was a lot of kind of media speculation about them having this supposed rivalry. But we found out after Michael passed away that they'd actually been friends. And they used to trade Sly Stone bootlegs with each other and (laughs) visit each other on their concert tours and stuff. Um, So when you came to know Prince, you must have spoken to him at some point about Michael. So what kind of stuff did he say about Michael? Oh, he loved Michael. He really did. He was always the one that wanted to bring that up. I mean, he he was he truly did love Michael. And you could really tell from just the way he talked about it. And you, you, you know, when somebody brings it up a lot without you them realizing it, they really he had a lot of respect for Michael, and I think he really did miss him. What was he bringing up? Was he talking about the fact that Michael was gone, or was he talking more about Michael's music and stuff? Just everything. I mean, it was always, it's either stories, oh, Michael, this and that. It's just a lot of different things, bittersweet, you know. It wasn't ever like, oh, this is my conversation about Michael. It was always just coming up. Just like, you know, when somebody misses somebody, stuff comes up a lot, you know. Any favorite tracks do you recall that Prince had of Michael? Well, he had a really funky version of Don't Stop Till You Get Enough that we would perform a lot. Yeah, it was funky. It was it was great. I always loved that part of his show when he go into that. Now you recorded your debut album back in time with Prince at Paisley Park in under three weeks, um, which is a very fast uh, process. Incredible album. Um, I got it as soon as it came out. Can you tell us what it was like to work on this album with Prince and and how the project came about to begin with? Yeah, I mean, it was so organically recorded it was just it was a blast to do because it was it was like old school we just go in with the band and track the band and then sing the melodies and it was it it was very you know I had been in the system and there were a lot of people a and my record prior to that but with P it was just like old school funk classic way to do a record there were no A&Rs or people pulling on us this way or that way. So it was it was really refreshing and, and inspired me and, and and really brought the fire up in me to kind of go back to my roots. Like, this is what life is back at home when I was four years old. So it was that's probably why I call it back in time, you know, just going back to that f- initial feeling, my initial childhood. How much did you bring to the table, like, in, in terms of writing compared with Prince? Was, was he taking a very traditional producer's approach like giving a little bit of feedback or was he very involved in the songwriting as well well most of the songs were written before i even met him and i would play him the songs and he was really more interested in coming up with great arrangements for the songs um and then there were some songs we wrote together a few of them so um he's really really great collaborator um really fun to work with not not bossy at all when it comes to the studio (laughs) he was very like very collaborative and very fun to work with and and just really smart he seemed to be quite in awe of you actually i I think i remember reading that at the 
the launch event at Paisley Park, he he said something like, um, "You had a voice for analog, something like that. You you needed no digital assistance whatsoever." Oh, right. I think he said, "So words well, to the effect of Judith has a voice for analog." Yeah, well, we were really into that, especially we tracked a lot of most of it on two inch tape and all the analog stuff and and he was you know we were saying are we are we so glad we're making analog record it was a thing because we were you know we were just kind of like fed up with some stuff um in the digital world but we know we still love digital i mean we still use like programmed stuff and we still did stuff like that but i think the essence of of it was classic soul because i'm a classic soul singer you know i'm not the way I phrase things and the way I move things is more of a classic style. So um, he really like latched onto that and caught onto that and was able to go there with me, which was awesome. Well, you, it's quite unique, really, to record everything analog nowadays. And then you released it in a very unique way as well, whereby you, I think, gave it away completely for free because of some sort of label dispute that you were in at the time but what was the thinking behind giving it away for free and do you think that it it worked out in the end yeah i mean it was all about finding unconventional ways to get music out especially in the day now we're in streaming world and just a different world and so you know he was always excited about finding new platforms and new ways of getting to that. So in that particular situation, we partnered with Live Nation and released the record through their their email server. So everybody who had, was subscribed to Live Nation received that record as a free download. And they were kind of like, oh my God, we've never done this before. And they were kind of like very hesitant of the idea just because it was so nothing they would ever do, you know. But it was just an unconventional way to get the word out and to get the record going. And that wasn't the end all be all for all. That was just the initial, we were, we released it commercially um, months after that, but that was like our first kind of unconventional way to get it out. And do you think that, what, what do you think was the benefit of doing that? It's a way of, of, of getting people to, to see the record and hear the record. It's, it's just really a promotional tool because a lot of people were like, wow, I got this weird email from Live Nation about this <laughs> record. And it was like, it was like, hi, my name is Prince. Sorry to bother you, but it's this amazing record I'd love for you to check out. So it was really like, okay, that's like, and then, you know, from there we just keep going. We, you know, keep promoting the record and releasing it. But yeah, it was more for promotion. What would you say is the most important thing that you learned from working with Prince? There's so many. That's a hard question for me. Um, I think, well, for one, being in the moment, being in the present moment and living that moment to its fullest, um, especially when you're performing, building off of the moment that you just had, and continuing it on. And I think that, you know, for me, that was a big lesson because nervousness or worrying about anything is either looking into the past or afraid of what's going to happen. And and he was really all about just be in the moment, just enjoy this moment you have right here on the stage. Cause that's 
where the magic happens. We spoke a little bit earlier about the the differences between Michael and Prince in in terms of their live performance, whereby Prince was very free flowing, changed the set list every night, and so on. And Michael, conversely, was very rigid uh, because of the way that his shows were put together. But did you observe any similarities in the way that Michael and Prince worked? In the times I was working with them, they had two different, very different types of shows. You know, P would always talk about, you know, I, I you know, I work on this, I do the show where it was like exactly the same every night. And he was talking about the big, you know, stadium shows with the the fire and all that, exactly what we were doing with This Is It. And he's like, he's like, that show runs like clock. You got to just hit it like the way it is. But he was like, but you know, what we're doing is more of, of a different kind of show. So I, I, my experience with P was definitely more about a freer form of a show and really just going with the audience and building a show as it came and, and being spontaneous. That was how I performed in that and with P. As a, as a musician, what sort of show would you feel more pressure being a part of something more natural like that, where you're not, where you don't know where the artist is going to take it or something where you have to be like clockwork what's more what's more daunting i guess or what where's what feels like more pressure i think being more free-flowing is a little bit more pressure um, but it's also more exhilarating because you you have the, the potential to really take that show and go anywhere but it does require a lot of concentrate like being in the moment and really paying attention to what the energy is and building off that. Um, so it's its own skill set. Uh, yeah. Well, I would guess as well that, you know, in order to be able to free flow like that, there must be quite a lot of rehearsal before you go back out on the road, you know, because Prince's band knew what more than a hundred songs, I guess, uh, because he would change the set list every night. So was it still quite an intensive re- rehearsal situation? Yeah, of course. There's not it, it. It was a way of life. It wasn't even rehearsal. It was just okay. After dinner, we get up there and we play more, and and it it was just constant until we're so tight, until it's so undeniable. Then you book a show. Everybody, then you know once he oh we're now excited. Okay, now we're gonna do a show tomorrow. It's just really it was really about being locked in as a group and. And, you know, that's why everybody, we just they, we just stay there. We live there. Um, it was a way of life. I think um, Jamin wanted to ask you about um, his favorite song <laughs> on the album. Yeah my, yeah. my my number one song on the album is Angel in the Dark. And I just oh, think yeah. it's a masterpiece. Could you, could you talk to me a little bit about that song in particular? Yeah, I mean, that was a song. Um, I co-wrote that song with a couple songwriters in LA and um, I just love that song because it's just it it speaks to just finding light and finding hope in a dark place and I was definitely in that place a lot in 2015 so my you know my mom was diagnosed with stage four cancer and we were going through that so I really, you know, dedicate a lot of those lyric lyrical ideas to her and how 
what a blessing she is in my life. But not just her, but everybody. There were so many people that were like angels in my life that, you know, mainly I look to God as as being, you know, my angel in the dark. When I'm going through a hard time, I look up to the heavens and I, I remember that he's pulled me out of so much. So that song, you know, represents a lot for me. And I wanted to ask you as well. Uh, I mean, my, I I love the album. I have two favorite tracks. The first is "Turn Up." I love um, Prince's little cameo as a crazy fan. Um, <laughs> but I love um, "Cry, Cry, Cry." So, what's the story mm. behind "Cry, Cry, Cry"? Yeah. So that's more about my mom. That was um, I was on my way to the hospital, and you know, she was going through her chemo, and I came up with that melody in the car on my way there and I sang it for her and she just got really excited she just brightened up and she was like you have to finish that please finish that for me finish that song um and that's why you know I finished it and and it became one of a very, very important song but she she was the inspiration behind that Been hurting for a long time. Seems like another day that never ends. Oh! Those long nights without a lover, so fine. A lover, yes. More than that, true friend. Maybe they did things. To hurt you, but baby, they don't deserve you.
Hi, this is Jonathan Sugarfoot Moffitt, drummer for Michael Jackson and the Jacksons, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. And you've just released um, a new single, uh, Pepper Club, and um, yeah. some of the publicity is saying that you're working on a new album and a, a live musical as well. So what can you tell us about the album and the musical that are coming down the pipeline? Yeah, so Golden Child is the musical, and it's a it's a live show slash almost modern ballet where the story is being told through dance, uh, and it's about celebrating diversity of people and inclusion of all people, uh, celebrating culture, understanding that we're all one. And the Pepper Club is a song that's gonna that comes from that play, and it symbolizes like the cultural mecca where. It's like a speakeasy where everybody comes together there and, and that's where we can all celebrate people. And that's what it represents in the show as well. But Golden Child is 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 a very important story to me because it symbolizes just my life, you know, as as a as a kid who was biracial and, and kind of accepted in many places, but also for the same reasons not accepted because I wasn't 100 percent this or 100 percent that. So I always found myself as kind of the black sheep, but realizing we're living in a world where there's lots of animosity against other people that we just don't understand. I wanted to create a story that just shows how alike we are and how we need to come together as people. It's inspired first by the songs. I was writing the music, and then as I was writing my second record, I realized that there was a story to be told. What method are you using to release the new album? Because the last we heard back in 2015 with Back in Time was that you were in a dispute with Sony and they didn't want you to release anything and so on and so forth. So is everything resolved now and you're basically a free agent? Yeah, and it was never with Sony. It was it was with a joint venture that they had parted ways with. But yeah, to answer your question, that, that whole thing had been settled um, really quickly after that even came out in 2015 so yeah i've been a free i've been free for for a couple years now from that i see and did was that settled by you or did prince help you out with his warner brothers experience (laughs) well we were both in the fight with that that was a really gnarly fight because they sued him like it wasn't sony that sued him it was the other lady um and so it was like a three-party craziness that we just all settled so that it would go away Oh, I see. So what's what's this uh, label or or by what venture are you putting the new album out? Through my own. Awesome. Wow. My own, yeah. Okay. And so is this um, is this kind of a a big risk for you financially, or are you safe doing that? Yeah. Well, I'm finding ways to you know financially supported in ways in the ways I need to and get things paid for so it's definitely a learning experience actually I'm really glad I'm learning so much about the business and what it is I want and how I want things structured and I see you know myself as a brand now that a multifaceted brand that puts out the music puts out the the play golden child as well as other things so it's really kind of exciting to look at it that way and and really put out the message and the story and the music and the art that I want to put out. Yeah. And we, we should say that the, the video for the pepper club is, um, choreographed by Misha Gabriel from this is it. 
Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. It was definitely a reunion. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Well, I just wanted to give you props yeah. as well, Judith, for, for doing this on your own bat. I think that's fantastic. This is There seems to be more and more artists going independent now and starting their own labels. I know Janet, Michael's sister, recently just started her own label, Rhythm Nation Records, and put out her new album herself. So yeah, uh, awesome. I think this is a great trend. So yeah, for sure. It's it's that time in the in the in the world for artists to do this. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So you're already on the road. You get you got your first gig of the tour tomorrow. Thank you very much for staying up late tonight because you're performing tomorrow. Um, yeah. <laughs> can, can you tell people um, you know some of the upcoming dates, what they can expect from your shows? Yeah, we're gonna be. We're going to be everywhere. We're going to be in Copenhagen. We're going to be in St. Moritz Festival tomorrow, Copenhagen Festival for two days after that. We're headed to the UK. We're going to be in Birmingham, London, Liverpool, Manchester, and then we're going to keep going. So definitely be on the lookout. It's actually a family affair. So mom and dad are going to be in the band, and it's going to be a pretty exciting show, really funky show. How big is the band? There's seven of us. Wow. Okay, so it'll be a big sound then. Yeah. Are you performing all the tracks from back in time? Yeah, it'll be half and half. It'll be music from back in time and then music from my new stuff, my new record. Oh, okay. So if, is your is the new record going to be available to buy at the gigs, or have we got to wait for that to come out? Yeah, you have to wait till fall for that. Okay. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to know what your favorite Michael Jackson song is vocally. Vocally. Mm, that's a good one. I mean, for me, I, I just love Man in the Mirror vocally. I think that he really takes you to that place. I'd like to ask you the same question about Prince. What's your favorite Prince song vocally? Oh, I can't even answer that. I, it's too, it's too hard. It's too, it's too personal. I mean, it's like I can't really listen to his. It's hard to even hear his voice. Mm. It's it's yeah. it hurts a lot. I can't, I can't even listen to it. I will one day, but it's just too soon. Yeah. Well, Judith, um, I just want to, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for joining us today on the MJ Cast. It's it's been a real privilege. Before you go, can you tell listeners where they can find you online? Judith underscore Hill is my Twitter handle. Judith Glory Hill at Instagram. JudithHill.com is my website. And you can keep me um, in your feed because I'll be posting when I'm going and performing around the world. We've got a lot of exciting things coming up the rest of this year. I'll be actually back in Europe in the fall for a longer run of shows. So keep stay in tune with what I'm doing. Yeah. And Australia plays at some point as well. I need to see you live too. Yes, yes. <laughs> we always get left out. <laughs> I know. I love Australia. <laughs> Thank you so much cool. for your time. I really appreciate how much time you've given us. And best of luck tomorrow. Thank you. And I may have to track you down in London and get you to sign a CD for me. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming um, next Thursday to the... Uh, Pizza Express show. Wonderful. Looking forward to it. That sounds great. All right. I'll see you there. Okay. Speaking with you. 
Wow. How did you think that went, Charlie? I thought that went very well. Uh, it was a real privilege to speak to Judith because I'm genuinely a huge fan of the album that she did with Prince. Very excited about seeing her live next week. So to get to talk to her was was really great. Um, I'm a, a great admirer of hers. And she was very friendly and she was much more open than I was perhaps anticipating that she'd be. Yeah, I mean, like, we, I would have liked to have asked some things in there around, you know, her observations of Michael's declining health, uh, maybe some things around Sony's treatment of Michael posthumously because she also had issues with Sony. But mm, I don't know. I could just hear in her voice that she probably didn't want to go in that direction. And also, I just think she's she's had a really raw deal. I mean, this lady, she... she was about to tour on This Is It when Michael Jackson died, which is devastating for for her in her career. Uh, she lost Prince, who it's come out recently was her partner when he died, which is yeah. just, just massively devastating for her. Not, not only that, but her mum had cancer in the middle of a, a huge professional fallout with the record venture that she was signed to so she had all of that stress going on as well yeah then she releases the album with prince and ends up getting sued i mean it's just been a a really horrendous i mean there's been highs as well she won the grammy uh 20 feet from stardom won the oscar but you know it's been a it's been a traumatic few years for her i think yeah and i just think it's a real i mean just the success story though let's focus on that i mean she came out from all of that and is now literally an independent artist who's gotten away from sony music she's releasing an album on her own label she's touring europe you're going to see her (laughs) um this is this is a a success story as well so i have a lot of respect for judith it's fantastic you know that she's managed to um weather the storm and, and get herself into this position no doubt from um, studying Prince, because of course that's what Prince was doing for like the last 20 years of his career, was pretty much working independently of any major labels and, and making a success of it. So she had the best mentor she could get in that respect. And I, I just hope it all works out for her. And um, I look forward to supporting her future projects. You know, I'm quite excited to hear the new album. The, the new musical sounds very interesting, the kind of the, the musical ballet. Yeah, yeah. I think the message listeners need to take away from this is, I mean, she's independent. So she's somebody that does need, um, you know, support. So if you like her music, which, and it's excellent music, go and get it. Go and buy it. If you If you like what she does, see her live. Go and, you know, pay a ticket and go and see her perform. Support her. Yeah, she's in the UK next week. I know that there are tickets left for um, some of the gigs. I think Liverpool and Manchester. So yeah, get out there and and support her because she's um, she is fantastic. You were saying that you saw some some live footage the other day. Yeah, yeah, I watched. Uh, I, I think it was a um, it was a live performance. Um, I don't. I think it was at Paisley Park. I'm not 100 percent sure actually. Now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure this is an official video on her website yeah it is it's um so it's called judith hill back in time behind the scenes at paisley park uh it's 
I think it's a, a live performance of Cry, Cry, Cry. You've probably seen it, Charlie. The start of the video, it's professionally shot. The start of the video is her at the gates of Paisley Park talking to Prince through a speakerphone. Oh, okay. And then the, the rest of the video is is her performing a song live and it's intercut with interview footage of her. Um, I've not seen it, but Cry, Cry, Cry is my favorite song on the album, so I'm definitely going to watch it after we hang up. I'm going to send you this. And it's got, it's got, I didn't realize this, but she is an incredible instrumentalist as well as a singer because the song, the live performance is her banging away on a piano and singing beautifully with this live band behind her. That's the album cover is her as a toddler, pretty much. I mean, she's a very small kid in, in the um, in the picture and she sat at a piano playing already. Yeah, yeah. But I'm going to send you this. you got to watch it. It's good. It's very good. So, yeah, good show. I liked it. There was a really good interview. I liked Judith. Um, I hope we get to talk to her again at some point in her career. Yeah, as long as she doesn't become too famous and... <laughs> leave us in her dust well even if she does become too famous i think that's good because she's independent now so like i hope that she has every success i want her to come to australia i'm tired of these people not coming to australia charlie i know well i'm I'm very fed up with the jacksons because it's been about 13 months since they performed in england now in in a place that's convenient for me to attend oh my god which are, is are just we a even disgrace go here this is ridiculous <laughs> you have had like a year's worth of Jackson's performances in the UK. Get on a train. Go to Edinburgh or wherever you need to go. It's ridiculous. Listen, for me to go to Edinburgh would probably cost as much as it would for me to go to Switzerland to see Judith. Um, <laughs> our trains are not cheap here. Uh, I can get – if I go to America, I can catch a bus from Los Angeles – to San Francisco and it will cost me a third of how much it will cost me on a weekday to get a train from my house to London, which is like 40 minutes. (laughs) Oh boy. Well, I don't know. Hopefully one of these days these artists come to Australia. All right. So I'm going to now tell people where they can find us online. If they want to uh, find our podcast on social media, we are the MJ cast on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and we are at the MJ cast at iCloud.com. If you want to email us and give us feedback on the show as well and how it's gone. And um, if people want to find you, Charlie, where do they, where can they get you? They can follow me on Twitter at C.E. Thompson, which is Thompson without a P, T-H-O-M-S-O-N. Or they can check out my work at www.charles-thompson.net. Do you guys have the, the word hyphen in, in the UK? Yeah, we have the word hyphen. You can say hyphen or dash. Okay, we don't have dash in Australia. Oh, but I okay. think America only has dash. I'm pretty sure. Oh. Okay. Anyway. Well, I don't know. That's typical America. Typical America. (laughs) Taking our language and butchering it. 
Oh, God. Um, Also, you can download our show through subscribing to us as a podcast. We are um, on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher Radio. We're on Google's new podcasty thing. Just search us in the app and you can can subscribe um, to the show. You can also stream us on our website if you want, themjcast.com, hit play, or you can head over to YouTube and play our shows there. But just remember, if you're listening on YouTube, you're getting a truncated version of the show because we don't always put all the music in the YouTube version because of copyright. All right. Well, that is a wrap. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the MJ cast with Judith Hill. I know we have, and, uh, if you tune back in in a fortnight's time, you'll be able to hear a new episode of the MJ cast um, with myself and my co-host Q, who unfortunately couldn't be here for this this um, episode, but no doubt you'll hear from him again very, very soon. So thank you very much, uh, Charlie, for joining us for this experience. And so, well, actually, I do have to give you credit as well because you are the one who set this interview up. I am, yes, quite by fluke. But um, it was uh, something that was proposed to me, actually, by somebody that was in touch with Judith's management. They're trying to get the word out about the European tour. So uh, I said, sure. And we managed to get it scheduled at very short notice, which is thanks to Judith and her management, uh, particularly Nigel Hart. And also my friend Lee Cocker, who put me in touch with Nigel. Awesome. I'm watching this video again and there's a guy playing the bass behind judith with the sock over the like an actual sock that you'd wear on your foot over the head of the bass guitar i wonder if it's if it's uh, mono neon there was um a bass player that was with prince for a very brief period around that time 2015 called mono neon he's quite a strange character you can find him on youtube and he play, he does strange things like um He'll play a, a scene from a film, and then he'll play the bass uh, in time with the dialogue. Rather than <laughs> playing song, he plays dialogue. It's, it's all very weird. He's, a, he's obviously like an exceptionally dexterous bass player. Yeah. Um, but, he, but what happened was Prince kind of ditched. He set up a new band. He was playing with Third Eye Girl. Then he set up a new band, and he used them for about two weeks. And then he decided to go off and do his piano thing. So the band never really went anywhere. I, um, I, yeah, I just Google imaged him. It is him because there's like 400 million pictures of him playing bass with a sock over the, over the <laughs> bass guitar. Yeah, must he be usually wears some kind of mask as well. He's a, a funny character. Ski, he's got like ski masks on and um, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, interesting. Well, Prince found a lot of his musicians in the last few years from YouTube. That was how he put uh, Third Eye Girl together. And I think he saw Judith. Uh, Funnily enough, he didn't find her through Michael, and he didn't find her through The Voice uh, or even through the film um, 20 Feet from Stardom. He found her because there was a video of her online being interviewed in Europe, and they said, who would you most like to work with? And she said, Prince. So he found her through YouTube, I think. Wow. Prince is a fascinating man, fascinating character. Oh, boy. I wonder if uh, there'll ever be a book written about his last few years. I'd love to learn about the truth around that. But like you sort of said, I think a lot of the people involved in it really just 
unable to or don't want to speak about it, similarly to Michael's passing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of speculation in the Prince fan community that he uh, was actually terminally ill, certainly months before he died, about four months before he died, he did um, his first piano and a microphone show at Paisley Park, and a lot of fans flew out to be there. And on the first night when he came out on stage and performed, there were fans in the audience crying um, and saying to each other, I think he's dying, because the tone of the show was so somber and kind of um, melancholy and reflective. He was talking a lot about his past. He was talking a lot about people who died, uh, about regrets that he had, and so on and so forth. There were a lot of people who came away from that first show at Paisley absolutely convinced that he was dying of something. He'd lost a hell of a lot of weight. So, and that part of, of, his death has not been released, strangely. So the police files have all been released in accordance with Minnesota law, but also under Minnesota law, in terms of somebody's death, if somebody's terminally ill, but then they die of a drug overdose, for instance, they they never release the illness. They only release what actually caused the death, which is the drug overdose. So it's, it's completely shrouded in mystery, the circumstances of Prince's final months and and his death. And it's something that a lot of fans really want to know about because they feel like they don't have closure. They don't understand what was going on in those final months. But the problem is nobody wants to talk about it. And it's quite possible he didn't tell anyone anyway, because that's just the way he was. I guess in some ways, as Michael fans, we're lucky because we sort of have closure on what was going on in general, maybe not the inner politics of uh, you know, finances and control and things like that. But we, we basically know how Michael passed away and what he was dealing with. With Prince, there's still a lot more, there's more questions. So I feel for the Prince yeah. community. I do. Yeah, it's, it's, it is um, difficult to find any kind of closure when you don't really know what was happening. Because on the other side, you have the fact that he was ordering new custom-made instruments in the days before he died. He was he just signed up to write a book. Um, so there's evidence there, perhaps, that he was not anticipating dying anytime soon. So it's, it's all very contradictory and, and baffling. Mm. Uh, so you just wish somebody connected to him would just come out and say it uh, either way. But it all seems to be people talking in riddles and making strange suggestions without ever really clarifying anything. Yeah, that's it. It needs somebody on the case, somebody to write a book. Hang on, I know a Prince fan who's also a journalist. Well, yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe in a few years when I'm not working on too much stuff already, but I'm, um, I'm just way too busy. And also yeah. nobody would talk to me anyway. I think he made everybody sign NDAs when they, when they were around him. So... It would be a miracle getting someone to speak. Well, we're very lucky that we get to speak to you, Charles. So thank you for joining us again and setting this interview up. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm going to head off now and have some breakfast. And I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> Night, Charlie. <laughs> MJ Cast.